Good morning, everybody. It's good to see so many of you back. Yep, for sure. And the last two couple of weeks have been great to see people starting to return. And Roy did a great job explaining that if you feel more comfortable watching at home, we've really went to a great lengths to make the online watching experience so much better. Before, you know, two or three, four people might watch uh, who were out sick or something, but now uh, live, and now we have uh, dozens watching. And so it's been great to uh, allow us to have an opportunity to minister even to homes in those situations. So I appreciate all, uh, particularly Mitch and Jeremy going to all the work to make that happen. We're in Psalm 121 today, and, and you know we've been in the psalm. Stephen, if you could help me with the first light over there, Stephen Whitaker in the lobby. Stephen, can you get the first light right there? Psalm, psalm 121, and there we go. Psalm 121, and uh, for those who are reading the Bible, it's tough to read in the dark, and so I hope that helped you out. Um, as you're turning there, let me, let me just uh, remind you of something critically important. And, and I'm going to illustrate this maybe with like a road race. You know that I've done uh, marathons before back in the day. And when you're running and you come across, especially if it's a sparse uh, uh, run and there's not a lot of people watching, and you get to a water station, and at the water station, you get there, what do they do? They pass you a Gatorade. They give you water. There's people there who are cheering you on. And, and you grab that, and you continue to go on. Uh, but, you know, if, if you just look at, at church and your church attendance as a, a water stop along the way, and you're just kind of running the race, and, and you grab, and, and you get a little more nourishment, and you go on, um, it, but you've never, ever invested into your race that you're running, chances are you're not going to make it very far in that race. That might spur you on and, and push you on, for a couple more miles or so, depending on your level of athleticism. But if you've never trained or never put the work in, then ultimately it's only going to move you up the needle a little bit. And, uh, and think about church that way, because throughout the week, you should be investing time in your relationship with God, reading his word, studying, praying. And then when you get to church, it's just like, wow, this nourishment. I've been getting, you know, I, I'm, I've planned, I've trained, I've, I've prepared my body for this, and this is helpful but you know what? It's not the most critical thing for me because that work was done prior to getting to this point. And I'm afraid so many people, church attendance is everything. Like, that's all that they do spiritually. And so you wonder why you fizzle out during the week because that's the extent of it for you. And so I encourage you to be focusing in on your relationship with Christ. So when you get to church, it's a celebration. Oh, it's great to see people. It's great to get that attaboy. It's great to be encouraged. But you know what? You know, I, this is more, there's more to my Christian relationship than just this. And so I hope you'll do that because God will use you so much more and so much greater if you will invest in your relationship with him throughout the week. So let's read Psalm 121. I'm going to read this and we'll pray and then we'll talk about it for a little bit. The psalmist write, writes, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep you your, I'm sorry, the Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Let's pray. 
Father God, we're dependent upon the Holy Spirit to bring the words of Scripture to life. And God, we want to connect to your promises, to your truth today. And we know that in our carnal, sinful selves that that's impossible. We need the work of the Holy Spirit during this hour. God, I pray that you will take your word and make it real and personal into each person and their situation so that we can go out of here this week and just see opportunities that you've already given us ahead of time to spread your news and your glory to those around us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. As you know, we're going through some of the Psalms this summer, and it's kind of nice because I got uh, Roy preached, I preached, Roy preached, Jeremy preached, I'm preaching today, Mitch will preach next week, and then back to me, and so it's been nice to have a couple weeks uh, to prepare for a sermon. I think the downside of that is maybe feeling a little too prepared, you know, and not relying upon God and relying on my own efforts, and so please uh, say a prayer for me today that I won't allow that to happen. Because we know that God is the one, like I prayed, that makes his word uh, become alive. And so as we're looking at these psalms, we're kind of skipping around to different psalms. And this grouping of psalms, the psalms that are from 120 to 134, are called the Psalms of Ascent. The Psalms of Ascent. And why is it called that? Whether the author had in mind at the beginning that this was the purpose or not, we don't know. But these were songs that were used as the Israelites, as the Jews would make pilgrimage from their towns to Jerusalem for one of the major festivals throughout the year. And so they, were, uh, they, they would gather up their family, gather up their things, and they would begin to make this pilgrimage to Jerusalem to celebrate and to worship God. And so these were songs that were sung during that Songs of Ascent because Jerusalem was on a mountain, on a high mountain, and so they would be walking up to Jerusalem. So therefore the title the Songs of Ascent. And so we don't know who the, the writer of Psalms 121 is, but we know that this was and, and still continues to be a favorite psalm for many people. So let's look at it. The psalmist writes, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come from? And so picture he and his family going toward Jerusalem, looking up in the mountains, the hills that were in front of him. And this could be a couple things. We don't know exactly what's in the mind of the author here, but it, this could be anticipation. I'm looking up, I'm seeing the hills in front of me, and wow, we're excited to get to Jerusalem to worship. Or it could be anxiety, because at that time, we know that thieves and robbers lived in the hills, and you'd make this journey, you didn't have all the luxuries we have today. And so there was risk involved in travel, during this time, great risk that was involved. And so usually people would pull together and caravan together for protection, but he looked at the hills and it appears to be that it was more about anxiety because what does he ask? He says, I need help. Where does my help come from? And so it appears to be that he's concerned with danger and he's asking, where, where am I going to get help for this journey? And before we talk about that for a second, just think about the fact that, the, that he mentions in the psalm that he looks up. He looks up from the ground and he looks up to see his surroundings and what's going on in front of him. I have a, a good friend of mine who's been a missionary in Kenya probably 30 to 40 years at this point, a long time. And he told me this story about a village that he went to and it was a very rural village. He went and he was visiting 
and sharing the gospel. And he was talking to a man who was extremely old. And they were trying to figure out how old this guy actually was because he didn't know his date of birth. He didn't know how old he was. And so they were trying to remember different things in history that may help prompt what age that he would have been. Well, the gentleman mentioned something. He said, I remember the year of the down face. And Jim said, the year of the down face? What is that? And he was able to pinpoint the year of the down face to a certain year where a very severe famine and drought had hit the land. And he said, we called it down face because you know that as you travel to rural villages throughout the country, people are extremely hospitable. They see visitors coming, they see strangers coming, and they come out to meet them. And they invite them into their homes, and they give them their best food and their best drink. And they celebrate. A visitor has come to our village. But the year of the down face, there is nothing to give. There is nothing to offer. So when a stranger would come to town, he said, you just didn't look up. You looked at the ground because you didn't want the shame of making eye contact and have nothing to give. And I thought this was a beautiful illustration when it comes to our own walk with God, our own Christian life, that so many times we can just focus in on our lives and focus in on the ground that's in front of us and never look up. And like the author who's looking up and he's seeing danger in the hills and anxiety that that brings, you may feel the same way. If I look up and engage other people, it brings anxiety into my life. It brings pressure into my life. It brings the potential for disappointment in my life. It brings a lot of things into my life that maybe I don't want naturally in my life. And so I'm content with just staring at the ground and doing what's in front of me and not engaging what God wants to do by looking up because I'm afraid what is out there. And there's a lot of people who live the Christian life that very way. And I'm afraid that COVID has maybe allowed us to get away with that more than normal. That we're saying, I don't want to minister because I'm scared of what's out there. But there's so many ways to minister and encourage people where you don't even have to come face to face with people. There's so many opportunities for us to encourage without being in a large group. If people are nervous about that, if you're watching online, there, there's phone and email and text messages. So many opportunities to encourage the body of Christ and others around you. But yet we're, we're fearful, and so we shut down, and all we do is stare at the ground and live in denial. I, I want us to look, it's going to be on the screen, Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 to 2. Paul references Two ways to live. Look what he says. He says, If then you have been raised with Christ, think baptism last week, think raised with Christ. If you're a believer, he says, Seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated, sitting at the right hand of God. Then he reiterates, he says, Set your mind on things that are above, not on the things on the earth. So what's your mindset, Paul's asking? Is it on the things that are above or is it on the things on the earth? I'm just going to look below. I'm going to look on the ground. Here's what matters to me. Because if I look up, it may be dangerous. There may be problems. There may be, I may be bringing things into my life that I don't really want and causes me anxiety. But Paul says, you're raised with Christ. He says, that's not an option anymore. You're to seek the things that are above. 
So what's your mindset? Is your mindset or your focus, uh, is, it, is it on Christ or is it on what's in front of you? Because your mindset determines what you say and what you do. That, that's extremely practical, isn't it? Your mindset determines the things you say throughout the day and the things that you do throughout the day. And so if your mindset is on earthly, then all you do and say are earthly things. If your mindset is upon things above, where Christ is seated, and you're looking up to him, then you're, the things you say change, the things you do change. And it may look very similar, but it's a whole different way of approaching life. And so he says, look up. He says, look up. Why does he look up? Because he knows that he needs help. Where does my help come from? I need help. And, and, and look what he responds, verse 2. My help, where does it come from? It comes from the Lord, the maker of this heaven and earth. And as I look up, I see that the God who made all of this is the God who made the hill and the mountain that's in front of me. And he's in charge of all this. He created all this. And so while there may be legitimate times for fear and concern, for sure, we know that God ultimately is in control and He made it all. He's the author of it all. And nothing that comes into life compares to Him and His strength. And so He wasn't, the author says, I'm not going through these mountains alone. I'm not going through these hills alone. God's with me. And I'm going to, us, in the 21st century, I'm going to serve and care for others as if I believe that God is truly with me and he's there to help me and he's much stronger and much wiser than I am. So as you look up and you see struggles as a parent, all right, this has been a trying few months for many parents. You've been with your children a lot more and it brings a lot more frustration at times, maybe a lot more guilt because you think I should be much more patient than I am should be much more caring than I am, and I just really want to just send them back to school. You know, should, should I feel guilty about that? And so many of you are frustrated in parenting. Some of you are frustrating, frustrated in marriage. And marriage is frustrating because, as we say a lot, when you put marry one center to another center, there's going to be issues. There's going to be stuff to work through. And so many of you, you're, you're drained. You're weary of parenting. You're weary of the work that it takes to put into marriage and coexist in love and harmony every day. And then some of you, just the world that we live in is exhausting. I mean, you turn on the TV and it's COVID, it's protests, it's unrest, it's political fighting, and you're just, you're just tired of it all. And, and, and you're comfortable just looking at the ground, getting your job done, doing your stuff, and being done at the end of the day. And then there's the, the really the greatest uh, adversity that we have, and who is that with? That's with ourselves, Right? that, man, I should be further along in my spiritual life than I am right now. I should not be having those temptations or having those thoughts or struggling with that issue because I should have been past that a long time ago. Ugh, what's going on, you know? And so you, you deal with all these things, but here's the thing. God wants us to be the same place where the psalmist was, a place of humility where it says, he says, I need help. I need help. Where does my help come from? Because I can't do this life alone. And you can't, and I can't do that. We can't. And I heard somebody say a long time ago, they said, Jesus lives at the end of your rope. And that's so true. When we come to the end of ourselves, 
that's when God starts to really work. When you're, when you're ready to throw your hands up and say, I give up on this marriage, and then your spouse says, me too, that's humility is where really oftentimes the, really the, the work starts happening and the good stuff starts occurring. Maybe you're frustrated because you've been sowing seeds at work of the gospel, but you feel like, man, nobody listens, nobody hears me. In fact, they're working the opposite way. They're trying to drag me back into other stuff. What am I to do? I give up, God. I can't do this. And God says, now you're at a place where you're going to rely upon me and not on your own strength. And so he says, where does my help come from? It comes from the Lord. He's all-powerful. He rules over everything. Verse 3, and he will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. What's he saying? He's saying God doesn't take a break. All right, I know it feels like a lot of times God took a break, right? That, God, did you not see that coming? Why didn't you prepare me for that? But God doesn't take a break. And he cares about your situation. And and get this, he cares about your situation specifically and personally. Specifically and personally. Because it's easy to look at God and say, well, you know, God's got a lot more important things to worry about and to be concerned with than my little life. I mean, he's got a universe to run. He's got, you know, angels to coordinate schedules. I mean, he's got prayers coming at him from every direction. God is way too busy to be concerned about my problem. But there's so many great verses that speak the opposite of that. Jesus said in Luke chapter 12, verse 6 and 7, he says, Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies, and not one of them is forgotten by God? Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are of much more value than many sparrows. What's he saying? He's saying that God cares about these birds that are basically worthless. And he says, you as his adopted child, you're way more valuable. You're far more valuable than any bird that's for sale at the marketplace. But God's aware and he knows. And this means your heavenly father exercises intimate, personal control in your life for his glory and for your good. And so when we look at situations, when we see those things that are in front of us, that ministry that looms large, that we feel like is beyond our power to make a difference in this person's life, or that relationship we feel like we, we should just give up on, we say, you know what, God, you're not asleep. You're not checked out. You care, and you care specifically and personally. And then verse 5 says, the Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. What is that about? Well, in Scripture, the right hand is always a biblical symbol of one's power and strength. And the word shade here, maybe if you're reading in a different translation, it says shadow. And so the picture here is, this is reassurance that we are always under God's protection and that He is always present with us and that He is the source behind your strength. He's the source behind your strength. So your strength, God is the shadow, is the shade over your strength. God provides the power. Yes, we work, we give effort, we try our best, but at the end of the day, we know that God is the power source. God is the one that ultimately allows whatever to happen and the good to take place to take place. And then verse 6, The sun shall not strike you by day, 
nor the moon by night. So he's reiterating, day or night, anytime, God doesn't check out, he doesn't go to sleep, he's with us personally, he's in total control, and he's there continually. And so, I've laid all this out to say that God is your helper, God is your strength, God is the one who's your shield. But it's very important here that we understand something. And I'm going to illustrate this with a very silly illustration, but I think it'll make the point very clear that it'll stick with you. So Vivi is going to come up and help me real quick. So hustle on up here, Vivi. I know you can run now. She's been cleared by the doctors to run, right? A little bit. So uh, she's going to help me on this. So uh, we're going to create a hypothetical situation. Alea, sorry, but we're going to kind of throw you under the bus a little bit here in this hypothetical illustration. But I want you to just pretend for a second, okay? That Alea, this is, I mean, far-fetched, obviously, but imagine that she and some of her friends plotted to kill you. Okay? That's, that's horrible, right? That a sibling would plot to kill another sibling. And then she takes you, okay? She takes you because she's jealous, and she throws you in a big pit. Okay? She throws you in a deep pit. And then her and her friends decide, you know what, instead of getting rid of you, they could sell you into slavery to a, in a far distant land, okay? And make some money. Make, it is terrible, right? It is an awful story. And make some money instead of killing you, and never they'd be, be, be done with you, never see you again, okay? okay. And so you're, you're gone. And now it'd be, it would grieve your parents greatly, but you know what? We'll even take that risk because they, they want rid of you, okay? They're, they went, okay? All right. So fortunately for you, the police catch, catch the people. They, they find the guy who's doing it, they, who's behind it, Alea. But in this situation, we pretend that it's somebody else, okay? So we don't put a picture of her up on the screen, okay? All right. So we're going to pretend it's somebody else. And they're behind it, and the police want to know a description of what this person looks like, okay? Okay, so we're going to show a police lineup up here. Show, show, show that on the screen. Put on the screen the police lineup, okay? There's the lineup, so we're not putting Alea's picture up. We're going to put other people up there. These are, one of these is the guilty party, okay? And the church is going to help, and you're going to give a description of the person one by one. Uh, we're going to go through these and see if the church can help you figure out which one is the one who's behind your kidnapping and attempted murder. So what's the first clue? Facial hair. All right, so they had, she said the guy had facial hair. Of course, he could have shaved it, but who we got here that has facial hair? What numbers, uh, uh, Vivi? Oh, oh, oh. I, one kind of has. Okay. And then two, three, four. Okay, two, three, and four, but, and maybe one. Okay, what's the, next, what's the next identification you have on this person? Was at least six feet tall. All right, so it was a, at least six feet tall and has facial hair. So who are we down to here? Three and four. Okay, let's see if we can narrow it down a little bit more. What else we got? Wore glasses. He wore glasses. So we think, does four look like the guy behind it and, and not your sister, maybe? Yeah. All right, what was the last clue? He had red hair. So you think definitively, right? We know. All right, so can we definitively say that it was number four, then that was the, based on her description that this was the person? We're, we're fairly confident in that, right? All right, All right. I know you're, you know your Bible pretty well, so put you on the spot. The story I told you... Who was that a story of? Do you remember from the Bible? I do. Yeah, they took, he had a coat of many colors. Oh. And... I know. Help her out. Somebody help her. <laughs> Joseph, right. Okay. Yes, thank you. All right, give her a hand. That's a story from Scripture that his brothers were jealous. They took him. They were going to kill him. One of the brothers didn't want to go for it. They threw him in a pit. Then they decided to make some money. They sold him. He was shipped off to Egypt into slavery. In their minds, to be done with their brother forever. 
And so if you were to put a lineup up there, who would be the guilty party? It would be the brothers, right? That would be obvious. The brothers were behind this. But I point all that out to get to this verse from Genesis 45, 8, which Joseph, in his own words, said this. It's going to be on the screen so you believe it's actually in Scripture. It says, so it was not you who sent me here, but who? Who was the real guilty party here? God. Really? God was responsible for all that. That's what Joseph said. Why did he say that? Because God allowed these circumstances, and I would even go so far as to say ordained those circumstances to save a nation, to save a people, the people of Israel, during a time of famine. Because he moved Joseph to Egypt, blessed him there, put him in charge after much adversity there, and put him in charge so that ultimately he could save Israel. And look what Joseph, uh, in Genesis chapter 50, Joseph says, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. I say that to say this. Listen carefully. Be very careful how you interpret your circumstances. Be very careful how you view the events of your life. Because God may be up to something that doesn't seem extremely obvious in the moment. Because as much as it humbles us, and as much as I say it, this life is not your story. It's God's story. And if God's the central figure in the story then all things are going to work for his glory. And then in, on the way only God can manage and do, then he can take it and be for your good. All things work together for good. For the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. Romans 8.28 And so when we face circumstances that don't seem too pleasant, when we encounter things that seem like God you checked out, you're absent, you're no longer here, there's nothing good happening in my life, God. Do I really believe that you're even there? What's going on? I don't get it. Why aren't you blessing me? Why isn't good happening? And God says, you don't see the whole picture. You don't know everything that's going on. And there's a good chance that we may not ever in this lifetime understand the, the situation, the circumstances that, that are happening around us. But we look at Scripture, we see the promises and like we sang in the song, even when I don't feel it, I believe it. Even when I don't see it, I believe it. Because God can be trusted. And so we don't allow ourselves to think the bad things that happen to us are unloving things from God. And that's extremely hard. And I, it's the, your pastor, I'm not standing here saying, I've arrived at this. And I get it. I understand it completely. I don't. Nobody likes to deal with suffering. Nobody likes to go through adversity. Nobody likes to be thrown into a pit, sold into slavery, right? I mean, that's terrible, awful stuff. But God says, I'm doing something. And on the other side of this, you're going to look back and you're going to say, God, you are behind this. Sure, these people have responsibility. What they did was evil, wrong, sinful, terrible, nasty. But God was able to redeem situations and take situations 
and use them for his purpose, that we have no understanding of how he can put these people into this position and allow these things to happen and hold them fully responsible for their sinful actions, yet accomplish his will. I don't have an answer for that. Truthfully, nobody has the perfect answer for that. Because if God could be figured out, he wouldn't be much of a God, would he? And so God is bigger than whatever you're going through. And God is working, and he has a role for you to play in his redemptive story. And just because, and, and a lot of people get hung on, up on this, the sovereignty of God, because they don't understand it, and I don't understand it. But the truth is, it doesn't alleviate responsibility. I love Jerry Bridges. I'll just sum this up in what he said. He said, God's sovereignty does not set aside our responsibility to act prudently to use all legitimate means at our disposal to avoid avoiding harm, harming ourselves and others and to bring about what is good and right. So just because God's in charge, you don't say, well, I'm just going to lay down here on the interstate and if I'm supposed to die, I die, right? That's not God's sovereignty. That's stupidity, okay? That's stupidity. We work, we do, we make good decisions. We use the brain that God gave us. We use the word. We're faithful. Even in Acts, you see the Christians who were undergoing persecution, they fled to the next city. They didn't say, bring it on, God's sovereign, we want you to hurt us. They didn't do that. They worked with what situation they had, but they trusted, and we should trust, the sovereignty of God, that he can take whatever we're going through and use it for his glory, which is the ultimate purpose, and even for our good. In verse 5, the Lord's your keeper, and he's your shade over your right hand. So you work you strive, you do effort with your power, but ultimately you know it's God and you're under his grace and you're under his authority. And he brings refreshment, the psalmist says, through those circumstances because his presence is with us. His presence is faithful and he's with us no matter what we go through, no matter what we deal with. And we run to the shade of God's presence no matter what we deal with. And so as you find yourself, and probably everybody here finds themselves in a situation right now with the world we live in. If not, you're going to be going into a situation or you're coming out of a situation. Everybody is involved in some kind of suffering or going to be involved in some kind of suffering because you live on a broken world and broken earth that has full of broken people in a broken body. So it's bound to happen. You run to the presence of God and God's character, who he is in those moments. You trust God. You pray you know his promises. You believe his promises. You are saturating yourself in his word. If anybody read Solid Joys yesterday, yesterday, we did that as a devotion with Harrison. He was the only one of our children home yesterday evening, and we did that. And man, it's amazing. If, if you read those and missed yesterday, go back and pick that up because it talks about the promise of, uh, promises of God, just being able to claim those promises because you have to know those promises in order to claim what God is doing. And you need to know scripture and see perspective. And then moving on, verse 7. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. So the psalmist reiterates his confidence in God's protecting power. He will keep you from all evil. Look, honestly, if you had a choice between, you had to choose between God, keep me from sin or keep me from suffering, which one would you choose if you had to choose one? Most of us would choose suffering because we don't look at sin as being really that bad, right? Because I, I, I can pray and ask forgiveness for the sin, 
And suffering is painful, it's awful, it's difficult. I don't feel good, it hurts me. We would choose, oftentimes, sin over suffering, yet Scripture tells us again and again that suffering is where we grow to be more like Jesus. And sin is the reason why Jesus had to come and die on the cross. And Tim Keller says this, he says, An ounce of sin can harm us more than a ton of suffering. An ounce of sin can harm us more than a ton of suffering. Will you, will you believe that? Well, well, I believe that. Because that's a tough thing to swallow right there. That we really believe that sin harms us much more than suffering. It'll change your perspective. It'll change the way you view God. It'll change the way that you live your life. Because you understand, God, you're working the suffering for my good. Sin brings complete and utter destruction. And God's grace, he says, the psalmist says, keeps me from evil. And God's grace keeps us believing and it keeps us trusting. Even in these circumstances, we see that God is the one that's holding on to us. Look at verse 8. The Lord will keep you. I'm sorry. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. So these pilgrims on this journey as they're approaching the hills, as they see the threat in front of them, they say, God, you're in control. You made the hills. You're in charge. You're in control. I trust you completely. I'm a little nervous. I'm anxious. But God, I trust you above all else. And you're going to keep us as we go, and you're going to keep us as we return. And not just for this life, but he says, more importantly, What's the last word? Forevermore. Forevermore. That's what the awesome thing is, that God's grace keeps us forevermore. And when you have an eternal perspective, remember a couple times I've used this illustration, the rope that's super long and a little bit of it at the end is colored red. And Mark always brings this up, Mark Carroll. He remembers this. Some of y'all remember this. It's a great illustration. A little bit of red at the end, and all this other is clear. And this is your life right here, and that that goes on forever and ever is eternity. And we're so focused in on this little bit of the rope, it's like, oh, can I manage? Can I survive? And God says, forevermore is much more important. Don't fear the person who can destroy the body. Fear the person who can destroy the soul. Because if they destroy the body... You know what? I've lost this much, right? The soul is destroyed forevermore. Forevermore. And so he says, from this time forth, forevermore. And so Jesus is your Savior. We claim verses like Philippians 1.6, which I repeat to myself all the time. For I'm sure of this. I love that. For I'm sure of this. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. May I add the word forevermore, right? He who began a good word work in you, put your name there, he's going to complete it. You keep your eyes up, looking on Jesus, not down to the ground, staring at what's in front of you. You lift up your eyes. Sure, it's nervous. It's scary. But you know what? You know what's behind the hills and above the hills? Creator God. 
and I can look past the hills, and I can see God who made the hills. Will you be willing to do that in your life? Look up, see God as big. Life is short. Eternity is long. God, protect me forevermore. It's your grace that keeps me. Finish what you started. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this psalm that here we are hundreds of years later and we're still celebrating what the psalmist wrote that was specific to journeys that they were taking but so applicable to the journey that we're on. And we must admit that we so many times are scared to death, that we're worried that maybe not necessarily what the world's going to throw at us, but we're worried if we're going to have what it takes to finish the race. And God, I thank you for your faithfulness, for your grace, that you keep bringing us back to this body of Christ. You keep bringing us back to your word. You keep bringing us back to prayer, even though we know that we've fallen short and we fall and fail all the time and sin all the time, but you don't let us go. That you keep pursuing us. And more than likely, each person's attendance here today is a result of that pursuit that you keep over your children. And God, if there's anyone here that's here for other reasons, not because they want to know you more, but they're here because they were drugged here by a spouse or they felt guilt to come here today, God, may they come to know Jesus Christ, the one who's the keeper of their soul, the one who's the sustainer of their eternal life, the one whose presence they need no matter what life throws at them. And we thank you for your grace and for your goodness and for your protection and for your love and your sovereignty. In Jesus' name, amen.